0: Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 118 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 118, which we are recording on Monday, July 11th, which is precisely, actually within minutes precisely one week prior to 2022's Internationals uh, Championship, in uh, Crown, which will be uh, very exciting and cool to, uh, you know, both participate in and hear about and so forth. So um, unfortunately, Scott is not able to attend, but I am planning to be there. I will be one of the um, I'm honored to be one of the uh, the quiz masters there. Um, and uh, yeah, so that'll be kind of a cool thing coming up. But in this episode, we are going to be talking about kind of two well, not really related things, but two very interesting things, theoretically. So the first is we're going to be talking about learned things that are good to know, or things that are good to know about quizzing that you can learn through experience versus just simply being told about them. And kind of like, what are those things? There's certain things that are documented, like in rules or standard operating procedures and so forth. But we're talking about sort of like best practices or strategies or ideas of how quizzing works, that you can be told these things, you can be coached on these things, or you can just learn them through experiencing quizzing. And we're going to kind of go through that list. And then uh, we're also going to talk about theoretical best ways, you know, for some definition of best, to organize and lead international quizzing programs. So this is not just our international quizzing program in general, but just sort of if you if you started with a blank slate, what would be, how would you organize things? What would be the best way to organize a program uh, at an international's level? And by best, we're defining that to mean, you know, ultimately brings about the mission of quizzing, you know, try to get the most number of people to memorize the most number of verses as well as possible. Uh, and so how would that work from an organizational optim- optimization perspective? All right. So that said, let's dive into our learned verse, uh, through experience versus being told uh, topic. And Scott, why don't you kick this off?
1: So I'm going to start by making hopefully good, but likely poor analogies, um, which is it is it is good to tell young kids that they shouldn't touch a stove because they'll get burned. Um, but it it probably is the case that while a good amount, a good percentage of kids will just listen to their parents and not do that, um, the ones that don't might, might learn better <laughs> um, through experience that don't do that again. Um, and so when it comes to quizzing, I'm curious to try to create two buckets of things that you could possibly learn um, and try to slot them into either these are best going to be learned by the quizzer going through experiences. And then the other side, which is um, they will best be learned by just simply being told by someone who has already gone through those experiences. So for that that second group, like best to be told by someone who has already gone through this, I would say quoting backwards to answer a chapter verse reference question would fall into that camp because it, it might feel unintuitive at first. It might take lots and lots of trial and error for a quizzer to realize that that's the optimal way to go about it, but simply having it be explained by someone who's gone through it, I think would be the fastest way to get good at chapter verse reference questions or at least that part of them. Yeah, it totally makes sense. So, but for the other side, I'm not entirely sure. Like, um, when I quizzed, I did not have very experienced coaches. And so it was the end of my second year after observing far better quizzers at great West that I was like, hey, maybe memorizing references would help me score better. Um, But I don't really know if, if I was told that on day one, if my learning experience would have been faster, better, more optimal, or if it kind of like took some time and kind of for it to be the right time for me to learn that sort of information.
0: Yeah, and there's a certain level of skepticism that's going to come up you know, with some of this stuff as well. So like the, the more likely an idea or a best practice for a quizzer is going to, in, you know, be, be met with skepticism, the more it needs to be experienced rather than being told. So like to your first example, uh, quoting backwards on a CVR, uh, seems unintuitive, but if a coach or for that matter, a captain or fellow quizzer, uh, explains what's going on, why, it's better to quote backwards, that sort of thing. Then it's kind of like, oh, well, yeah, I, that makes sense. I get it now. And there's, pr- I would assume there were not, there would not be a lot of skepticism uh, based on on that bit of knowledge once it is, you know, been explained and transferred. It, it 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 is unintuitive, but once it's explained, it's like, oh yeah, okay, I get it. You know, and and there's not a lot of resistance there. But something like memorizing references on the other end of the spectrum, like. If a coach says you really should memorize references and says that over and over and over again, the repetition of the information may lodge in a quizzer's memory and be like, well, my coach really says that memorizing references is a good idea. And they say that all the time. So there must be some bit of truth there, but I don't really buy it. Right. Like maybe it's good for some quizzers, but not for me or not for a majority of quizzers. And there isn't like, um, This, it seems to me there could be some level of skepticism that kind of prevents somebody from really latching onto that strategy until they try it out and experience the, you know, the value that comes from the mental capabilities of, of lodging, uh, Textual content with the reference uh, in in terms of organization and and uh, context and all sorts of other things, and so like once you experience that, then then you're like, oh yeah, this is actually a really big deal. It's a, it's it's not just a mild suggestion for an optimization, but it's a it's a an order of magnitude sort of delta that we're talking about here. So yeah, I mean maybe skepticism plays a role into it. I don't
1: know if this falls into the conversation, but I'm trying to think of information that would come from someone experienced that is an absolute. And I don't think, I think there are very, very few absolutes because a lot of information is very contextual, right? Like, sure, it is better to study an alphabetized list of expected um finish and quote or finish questions. Um, But only if that's the type that you want to really study on right um, right if if you don't care about that type then that piece of information is not valuable to you i think just about the only piece of information that i can think of as being an absolute is assuming a quizzer is going to spend a fixed amount of time studying um, they should learn material better uh, learn less material better rather than learn more material less well um, and i think that applies regardless on if you want to try to average a five at a meet or a 90, or if you want to get interrogatives or if you want to get situations, I think it kind of applies across the board.
0: Yeah, I I generally think that's true. But based on a scientific study I just made up in my head, I wonder if there's a diminishing point of returns in that absoluteness, right? So like, I can see a point of saying If I only memorize one chapter of, let's say, 20 chapters, if I only memorize one chapter, I know 5% of the material, and let's say I know that one chapter, word perfect with references, that's all I know, versus I have a pretty decent memorization, not word perfect, but pretty decent memorization without references of the whole material, I I feel like I'm going to do a whole lot better in the latter scenario. Um, I, you know, I'm not necessarily going to like be as precise. I I mean, there's certain question types that are just off, out of bounds for me. Like the quotes and finishes are pretty much going to be out of bounds for me. But in terms of like interrogatives, like I could, you know, do decently well, uh, with interrogatives given a slow, uh, a slower quiz right now at the internationals level, then yeah, that totally inverts, right?
1: Yep. So I think that's a good piece of information that would help, like, may not, I mean, a quizzer would learn it at some point in time, right? When they kept jumping on interrogative questions that they kind of recognize, but can't quite get them correct. Um, what else? I mean, I think alphabetical lists for finish questions and situation quotations, um, is pretty useful to just tell a quizzer. Um, I don't think they would have any problem believing you.
0: What about talk about I mean, multiple answers as a type has been kind of gutted in its importance based on the reduction of its uh, numbers for the type distribution. But going back a few years back when multiple answers weren't, you know, in that in, in the current predicament uh, where multiple answers were potentially they they were somewhere between valuable and extremely valuable to specialize in. Talk about the importance of building a list. I mean, you and I both will say, you know, up front, the importance of building a list in that sort of universe was massive. Um, but is that something that can be told to a quizzer or do they have to experience it?
1: I I think they – I think you can definitely tell them. I don't think there's a downside to telling them. But I think nothing beats seeing someone actually use a um, – seeing another person quizzer get one right that looks like magic and be told that it's not magic it's completely knowable by you right now right Um, right like i remember my first time at internationals and i was you know a much less good quizzer than most of the people there but i knew in john 21 there was one chapter reference multiple answer so when i heard a chapter reference multiple answer and i heard john according to john chapter 21 i just jumped and i got it right (laughs) And I was, I, you feel like a superhero, right? Cause there were, there were multiple answer specialists in the quiz that I beat on the jump because I had done list work. Um, and you only need a couple instances of that to just, you know, work really hard on constructing a list and make sure that you've mastered it because there's so much gain that, that you can get and you can, I mean, to me, the biggest value of making a list was figuring out what the potential jumping speed that you could go at was. Um, and on types like multiple answers, you can push it completely to the edge. Um, it definitely helps to know that on interrogatives, the optimal speed is 2.3 syllables versus one and a half. But it, it's not like multiple answers where, you know, in Hebrew's ear, the optimal speed on multiple answers might be less than a syllable. Um, and it, there's extreme competitive advantage to knowing exactly what that edge is.
0: Yeah, well, and and interestingly enough, in our diminished distribution for multiple answers, I think the advantage to specializing in multiple, and well, maybe not specializing, but the the advantage to creating lists for multiple answers is actually increased because if you're willing to put in that time, there are fewer people. Be, you're going to have an advantage and a massive advantage for that type in. Just in a fewer examples of where it's going to come into play right because so and the re- and the reason being is there's fewer people actually putting in the work because the type doesn't show up all that much anymore, so when it does show up for those who have put in the work, the advantage is even stronger because you're fighting fewer and fewer people uh for those uh limited number of questions potentially i mean i think for
1: for multiple answers because of how many there were in a quiz on average and how easy they were. And when I say easy, the two components are the amount of time required to completely master the type um, and the average kind of jump speeds that jumps are one at, because I think that multiple answers, the optimal jump speed was getting close to a half syllable, like something mm. extraordinarily, extraordinarily low, but a speed that almost no one actually pushed the line to. And so if you're getting in between a half syllable and a syllable, and that's the average winning jump speed, your chances of getting it right were actually still quite decent compared to, you know, quotes in John or situations in Matthew where the jump speed gets pushed so such that expected accuracy might be less than 50%. But anyway, because those two things on multiple answers, so many people were awesome at them. And so it could be that in a given quiz meet, as long as you have more than 12 or 15 quizzers who are awesome at them, the speed goes to the fastest possible. And so like, but if there was, you know, 40 people who could do it, the speed's not going to go faster. And so reducing the number of them, if instead of 40 people mastering it, there's 20 or 15, it could be that the average jump speed to win it doesn't change at all.
0: It seems to be, especially at the upper levels of competition. So like at internationals in Florida, Uh, During finals, there was, was it Florida? Yes, I think it was. There was, um, there was uh, one particular quizzer who, uh, you know, it was a, I I believe it was a multiple answer type, could have been an interrogative, but I think it was a multiple answer type. Uh, Literally nothing was said. Uh, as far as like audibly anything. So like essentially they jumped and they got a mouth shape and then they got it correct. Um, And it was like, I I remember tweeting at the time, like I have no idea how they got that question correct. Um, But then in thinking about it afterwards, I was kind of like, oh, well, okay, if it's a multiple answer and they really studied their list and maybe they know a particular mouth shape is, and especially if there was a multiple answer previously, that let's say there's two, two syllables that start the same way with a distinctive mouth shape. And they already had one in a previous, uh, recently previous, uh, uh, finals quiz. They're like, okay, it's very unlikely. It's that one, this coming question. Okay. Lightning speed jump or something like that. So I don't know how they did it, but, um, it was pretty impressive. The other thing, you know, on this topic, situation questions kind of fall into this, like as, as easy, quote unquote, as multiple answers are. And, and like you said, easy, as long as you're willing to put in the the work to get there i think situation right. questions are even easier uh, if you're willing to put in the work i think they're
1: ac- they can be but i think i mean we've talked at length about how i don't like writing situation questions because so much is just not spelled out for me right <laughs> i can do right, a right. lot of i can do a lot of things as a question writer that are valid but that a quizzer may or may not expect. So the end result is the quizzer can't necessarily expect something standard. And really, if you compare, like, I know that we have people that disagree on this is a multiple answer and this is not, but I feel like most people would agree on 90 to 95% of the multiple answers, Um, like a vast majority of them. Whereas it's not about that we agree on situation questions. It's would I write the same one as you? And I think as a quizzer, if you're expecting this bulk of quotations, this alphabetical list of quotations to be who said it and when, and you don't get that, um, your list study doesn't really pay off as much as you were expecting. And I think that that's very probable to happen.
0: Yeah, it's it's very probable. But the thing is, there are there is a finite number of quotes that could become situation questions, right? And so, yes. like, what you're asking in the question is um, is very easy for a question writer to not include everything, but they can't include something that's not there, um, and they can't start the quote somewhere else. (laughs) Right. Um, sure. sure. So as a result of that, like, and there, and I would, I would, I would argue, and it's going to be highly dependent on the material, but I would say probably in all cases, there are fewer possible valid situation questions than there are possible valid multiple answer questions. Would you say that's true? I would agree with that. Yes. Um, So
1: now it just, it does depend though on the, the iterations so I mean I, if you're just talking about quotations um then yes I agree with what you've just said.
0: What do you mean iterations? You mean like like the number of questions I'm asking on a a quote? Right. Like if there's a
1: you know a who a how and a when that's you know I can't do the the math in
0: my is that six possible um iterations that could be written? Sure, but let's say but let's say there's a who how and a when very very likely I'm going to write let's say 60% of the time I'm going to write it and I shouldn't say I 60% of the time the question writer will write the who why and when right but uh maybe the other 40% they're they're getting you know 20% of the time they're doing two uh, uh two over here and the other 20% they're doing two over there but they're not going to do like in a who why when they're not going to pick like the who and nothing else right um so like they yeah might. <laughs> They might, they might, but, but realistically, like, yeah, you may not necessarily be able to always jump before the quote begins, but there's a chance that you could. And I would say that the chance that you could is probably better than, well, no, I wouldn't say better than 50%. That's totally bogus because a lot of those are going to overlap, but it's going to, it's going to, given what you you have there, like I'm, I'm seeing a lot of matrices, you know, flying around in my head here. But if you were to take these quotes, which are all going to start the same way, and you could say, okay, well, these are all the possible uh, sub questions, I don't know, it's not, how would you define that questions of the question that you can ask on them and say, okay, great. If they only ask me for, say, one or two of this list of three or four, um I can't limit down this prior to the formation of the first syllable of the quote, but I can after, say half a syllable, right or sure. or you know something like that like like you can start gauging down where that needs to be. And if you're if you're willing to put in that time, uh, you can be pretty close to unbeatable on situation questions.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um i don't think I have anything to add to that. I mean, I think the key point is that the number of possible quotations is not large
0: yeah, it's definitely not large. I mean, can you reliably jump prior to the formation of the syllable of the of the quote? No um but you might um i mean it, it kind i mean if you really do your study, there could be a situation where uh, <laughs> a situation of a situation where you they're going to ask four things and you know, the only place where you can ask those four things is a particular type of quotation. So then in that case um you can't jump until they have at least begun the question uh and then off to the races. Right. Right. Um
1: Nitpick, you said f- possible four, but the max is three. Sure.
0: The match, the max is but, three, but, but let's but still, yeah. So let's say there's a, a how and a when and a why or something like that. And right. those three combinations only show up in one possible place, uh, right. then it's like uh, that becomes a brutally fast question at that point.
1: Pulling open my Luke question set from six years ago, um, I have 476 multiple answer questions and 435 quotations for situation questions written. Okay. Um, so actually closer than I was expecting. But I think another interesting thing about situation questions is that for most quizzers, all of the potential answers and pronoun clarifications from verses before make them extraordinarily difficult, but those things don't add a lot of difficulty for the international squizzer.
0: Right, right. Well, and, so, and I mean, and it's also going to be highly material dependent. So, like Luke doesn't terribly surprise me that 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 you know multiple answers and situations are fairly close. I mean, they're closer than I would have predicted. Um, but like compare that to like axe where like we're writing, you know, question sets for axe right now. And it's like, there are way more multiple answers than there are situations in, in acts stand by pulling open acts. From <laughs> from <laughs> from Scott will, last... Scott will give us the actual truth. Oh my goodness.
1: 791 multiple answers in axe? That's insanity um 183 quotations
0: yeah yeah well and it's it's just the style um the style of of acts is more a historical rather than a narrative it does have narrative uh but it is more uh, historical like here's what happened and the the style is very much and they did a and and b and c right or and sometimes usually not c but it's usually like um a and b went over here uh, or a and B talked to these people and those people did, you know, X and Y, you know, there's, there's just, it's almost every verse has like, uh, you know, a couple uh, at least one or two multiple answer questions that are valid in them. And I have no, uh, no input
1: into our involvement in the PNW question writing, but I can tell you the last cycle, there were five situation questions in my list that, um, had a Y and there was 11 that had an about whom. Hmm. So anyone making a list, see if you can see if you find a similar number or not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And I mean, the, the other thing that's kind of interesting about situations, they, there's not that many of them that can be written out of acts. And so as you're, you know, in, in PNW, we have one official question set. So you're going to get really sort of sub, not subjectively, you're going to get Not 100% clearly, but certainly marginally clearly uh, accustomed to what is written in the set just by exposure to that set over time.
1: Yep. So I have 183 situations or quotations, and 110 of them are knowable on purely the quotation part under two syllables. Yeah, yeah. Um, And even more... 140 are knowable in under three syllables, which is, eh, that can be a little bit slow, but interesting. Yeah.
0: Well, what other kind of stuff here in, uh, being told versus experience, like, like one of them, I mean, there are certain things we should, we could probably reference here, things that can't really be told, right. That, kind of have to be experienced right so like how do you how do you jump on benches if you've never jumped on benches before there is a there is a little bit of a learning curve now it's not much and i think you know it's a very little amount of experience on the bench like doing a couple of practice jumps and you can probably you know dial in exactly how to do things. But I mean, that's something that you can't really be told, well, here's how you hold your muscles to optimize your jump on a, on a bench versus a pad. Right.
1: Right. Especially because the main principle of you want to have the smallest amount of weight possible holding down your, your light. And you want to know exactly what physical movement, um, toggles, right. Moves between your light coming on and your light going back off um those are true for everybody but how like how everyone makes that happen is very different right there's not one correct way of doing that or optimal way of doing that um so it's it's harder for someone to just tell you
0: right how would you advise somebody then i mean other than what you just said uh you know minimal pressure on it know the muscle movement to change it um you know, as somebody who is, let's say, going to internationals for the first time, they haven't jumped on benches before. Let's say, uh, what what do you tell them? What can you tell them that gives them the best opportunity of experiencing what they need to experience prior to a quiz to be able to optimize in?
1: All I do in practice is I would bring the box in front of their face. And I would just hold down the arm button so that when they jump, the light comes just goes on and off, on and off. Right. It doesn't get mm-hmm. locked in and just let them experiment so that they can just see right there. Like, oh, now it's on. Now it's off. Now it's on. Now it's off. Um, and I would rather a quizzer get really comfortable just knowing that completely on feel and not relying on the click sound of the bench. Yeah. Um, so if I saw that being a problem, I might blast music so that they couldn't really hear the click. They would have to know Mm -hmm. where that jump point is otherwise. But I, I mean, you just have to make it work for yourself. Right. And so I would just bring the box right in front of them, just hold it there so that they can stare at it. Right. I think other things that can be learned, this is more, well, that I guess this is one quizzing and one coaching is it's not always obvious what the penalty is or what the cost is of something. Like say for an error, a lot of people focus on potential negative points. But over time, I've come, I'm not claiming I'm right, I've come to see that not being completely prevented from getting positive points on the next question is a way larger penalty um, than negative points for an error. And so because of that, like I remember when I first either was told or realized that, hey, if we have no team errors and it's question like 15, it's a free error. Well, it's not a free (laughs) air because if you air, you can't get 16, right? So it's not – it's much less free than I initially came to believe. Um, So that's one case where there's kind of a hidden cost. Um, But then another case is protesting as a coach. You know, to me, there was huge value to getting points back, right? If your team got an error, if another team got it right. There's also a lot of value to, you know, if you believe that your team is right, like – kind of standing with them uh, and being clear that you think that they're right. Um, But there's also like just the time that a protest takes where nobody's quizzing, like specifically your team is not quizzing. um, And it just, it can have a negative feel um, that can hurt your team scoring wise. Right. And so that, that is a hidden cost um, that has to be weighed against the potential other benefits. Right. Um, Whereas initially I, I only saw the benefits. And then over time, I was like, I think there's more costs than I previously thought. Um, maybe not enough costs to cause me to never protest, but maybe to protest a little bit
0: less. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and it's so situational, too, because it's like if a quiz master truly got something wrong, like I think the protest is 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 necessary, if not even just, I mean, there's the strategic calculation of like, is this going to benefit my team? And maybe it does a tiny bit in this moment right here, but then it also like harms my team because of the hidden costs of what you're talking about. Absolutely. But at the same time, the willingness of a coach to protest with a good attitude and everything, right, can be just enough of a... I don't know. I, I don't know how to describe it, and this is probably a really poor way of describing it. But the threat of a protest, a threat of a legitimate protest, is something that can keep a quizmaster in line, right? Um, and I mean, obviously, I would hate it to ever. I would hate for the situation to ever devolve to that sort of level. I mean, obviously, you want quizmasters who are always questioning their rulings. Uh, their own rulings who are always exam, self, trying to self examine, always trying to get as close to accurate on their rulings as possible and trying to be as fair as they possibly can. But sometimes, you know, you get a quiz master who doesn't necessarily put hundred percent of their focus into that. And so having that sort of threat of the, of the protest be there is kind of this idea of like, Oh, I can't just slap a ruling haphazardly on things, I actually have to think it through and try to be as precise as possible, right? And so if you're in a situation where you've got a quizmaster who is kind of acting flippantly towards certain rulings, the protest in that moment might be all things considered ROI negative, even if you win, because of like you were talking about the, the sort of hidden costs to the disruption of the room in that particular moment for your team. It might actually be ROI positive, let's say long-term over the course of the entire quiz, maybe not, but even more so long-term over the course of the entire meet, where it's like the quiz master has been given kind of a, a gentle, polite nudge to say like, hey, you need to care about precision here. I like where your head's at, and I
1: wish that I had observed anything like that, but I've only observed the opposite.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about that. Oh, oh, so like where, where a protest. So let's say a a quiz master who is kind of being flippant gets a protest and doesn't and reacts negatively to that and just sort of doubles down on their flippancy.
1: I I wouldn't say that they were being initially flippant. They might've just made a mistake, right? Sure. Um, Either because they believe something incorrect or they just didn't, do something, you know. It doesn't really matter, right? Um, but in my experience, it's much more common for a challenge and a protest to cause um, an insecure quizmaster to um, res- to both not change and resist future challenges and protests
0: even harder. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, I've seen that, and, and I wouldn't call that. I wouldn't call that universal, right? It's it's going to be highly dependent on the quizmaster. But you're right. I have experienced quizmasters who win, challenged, slash, protested, and it's really probably more the protest than the challenge. But when protest, they don't take it well. Um, and I mean, and- th- they still act positively um uh, but then you can sort of tell like oh they just got really cold toward that particular coach <laughs> you know right yeah and in general the type of quizmasters who are more
1: more prone to being challenged and protested are also of the personality <laughs> to um be ruffled by by such an event
0: that is true that is true um So there's a lot of calculus that goes into it because you're saying like, do I think I have a legitimate case? Because if you don't have a legitimate case, if, if, if you don't, if you don't, if you're, if you're on the fence about whether something is protestable, it's probably a good sign that it's not right. Um, But if it's like, if you've got a good case where you're looking at it going like, yeah, I, I, I think this is sort of black and white here. I think I can make a good argument. Uh for this 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 seems like a pretty clear thing here. um then it's like, well, now you have to run into, run the calculus of like, will the quiz master even listen to this? Will it burn the opportunity for a future protest on a future question later? Um, and what does it do to the impact of the quiz? This is making me feel very pessimistic t- toward protesting, but the thing is like we need protesting. it needs to exist. I would agree.
1: But when I first started coaching, I was like, hey, the quiz master objectively messed this up and it's going to be a 30 point swing for us. Of course, I'm protesting. And then as time went on, I was like, so there's definitely less than a 100 percent chance that the protest gets accepted, maybe 60 percent, more likely 40 percent or 30 percent. And at that point, um, the potential gain in points is not worth all the other surrounding negatives.
0: Well, and I mean, are you talking about like the protest being accepted by the quiz master, or is it the protest being accepted by the meat director? Because, I mean, ultimately... Both. Uh, yeah, sure. But, like, ultimately, I mean, if... When, when I get protested, I usually see it more as a conversation of the three coaches coming to an agreement rather than me making a decision, right? Um, so I mean, obviously, like I, I'm not a completely absent bystander during the protest adjudication. I'm, I'm leading the conversation. I'm encouraging the dialogue, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but ultimately at the end of the day, like if I've got one coach who's protesting and saying, I think X is true. And I've got, uh, two other coaches saying, no, I think this protest is in incorrect. Right. Um, then it's like, what my job is more like, I'm trying to get the coaches to agree to something. Right. And if the coaches never agree, then it's like, okay, yeah, I guess I have to actually make a ruling on it. But it's like, and it's not that I'm not wanting to make a ruling on it. It's rather, my approach to adjudicating the the protest is to say like well coaches can you three come to an agreement because if you three come to an agreement and and it's against my ruling uh on the challenge then clearly <laughs> clearly i have something that i need to think about right like i'm i'm very likely in the wrong if all three coaches are saying yeah i think you're 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 not right on that that ruling of the of the challenge right Two things. One,
1: on, on just that, yes, if if they all three believe something different than you, you should definitely reconsider your priors. But I know that this is not a a perfect parallel. You, we have definitely discussed what if all the quizzers on the stage, all three captains are like, the quizzer totally said X, but you as the quiz master did not hear it. You can't just accept, you're not just going to accept what they said as true, Right. And right. so s- similarly, you shouldn't just accept something as a ruling, um, on a protest if you don't believe it's true. Now, sure. Three coaches disagreeing with you is like hearty evidence that you should really, really, um, cons- reconsider your point of view and interpretation of the rule book. Right. Um, right. But you shouldn't just blindly say, well, Hey, if they all three agree, who cares what I think? Right.
0: That's true. That's true. But I mean, it's one thing like if, if a quizzer says an answer and I don't hear the answer and I count them incorrect, they're challenged and, uh, or it's challenged and all three captains say, no, I really heard them say X. Um, then it's like, you know, I turn to my answer judge. What did you hear? The answer judge says, I don't know. Uh, then, and it's like, then I, you know, I go back to the recording. Can I grab anything off the recording? no. I don't hear it on the recording. Then it's like, well, I've got to count you incorrect because I I didn't hear you and I don't hear it on the recording. Then it gets protested and all three coaches say we heard it. Right. Um, Then it's like, well, I'm at that point, I'm kind of I'm torn because I'm like, okay, well, maybe my hearing is really, really bad. But at the same time, the quiz, it's the quizzer's responsibility to ensure that I hear. And if I didn't hear, and I still can't get it off the recording when I listen to the recording, uh, maybe that's a situation where all three coaches are like in unison saying they said X. And I'm like, well, you guys might be right, but I didn't hear it. Therefore they're still incorrect. That would be an interesting, that would be an interesting scenario because like, you know, at some point, maybe one of the coaches says, let's take it to the meat director. And the meat director's like, well, all three captains heard it, all three coaches heard it, but the quizmaster still didn't well, how do you adjudicate that if you're the meat director?
1: I mean, you'd have to fall back on i mean, if you have no i mean i think we've
0: we've gone over this, right? If well, they, I mean, the meat director listens to the recording, and then the meat director says, "I either hear it or I don't um, and
1: yeah, and if they don't, I think that you're done
0: yeah, I think on, yeah, exactly. I mean if the meat director one. doesn't hear it you're you're done, yeah, but and but if I the meat w- director does hear it, you're done. <laughs> just in the opposite direction. Right.
1: But I think we're talking about something more gray, which is like, oh, did they say enough to be counted correct? Right? Sure, sure. And so maybe all three coaches are like, we think that they did. And the quizmaster's like, I really don't think that they did. Um, so just because the three coaches all agree doesn't mean you should go that way, but it it is That's true. it is st- strong and
0: useful information to the quizmaster. <laughs> it is strong and useful. I, and and the thing is like I would it would be more about it's it's for me, it's not about the conclusion. And I noticed this about a lot of really smart people in quizzing. We seem to think that our conclusion is what matters. And it's like, no, it doesn't. It's how you got to the conclusion that matters. Right. So like I've, I've seen this, especially in like rule book discussions and debates where somebody says, I think X is better than Y. And I'm like, OK, great. That, that is meaningless to me. (laughs) Like you, you defend that point, like explain why, right? Um, explain why X is better than Y or something like that. Then I can, I can latch on to it or something. But just saying, I think X is better than Y is like, it's a, it's a, it's a conclusion without any sort of, um, supporting infrastructure. So it's like, it's building a deck in the sky with no, you know, pylons. It just kind of falls apart. Right. I would always,
1: smile to myself when, you know, maybe the quizzer said, John went to Jerusalem in the morning. And they said it a few times. And then at the end of the day, uh, I say, No, that wasn't enough. You're incorrect. And then I get challenged. And the challenge is the quizzer said John went to Jerusalem in the morning. And I think they should be counted correct. And I'm like <laughs> right. a- and I'm like, we heard the same thing here, right? You have to like And I'm not claiming that I'm right, but you have to tell me why you disagree with me specifically. Like we heard the same thing and we are ruling on the same thing here. Um, So I kind of wish that in some challenges I could like rebut the challenge myself and just say like, you have to tell me more.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, and in in a way you can, right? Like your response to the challenge, there's no format for that. You You can explain all kinds of stuff. In, in your response. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful teaching opportunity, right? Sure. Sure.
1: And, and that's why I also, whenever I make a ruling on, especially something like that, where the quizzer said a lot of the stuff, but ultimately I didn't think it was enough. I try to say why, like, I'll say, Hey, you didn't miss these two words. And I consider that to be like part of the meaning and like the meaningful information. And then hopefully that provides information to all of the captains. If they're like, Boy, I don't think that's meaningful at all. Then they can challenge specifically, like, hey, you think it's meaningful. I don't. And hopefully they tell me why. Right. Right. But right. that's not that's not something that I need to hide from from the quizzers. Like I want you to have it out with me over that interpretation over something that's gray.
0: Right. Well, any other stuff you want to throw into the learned through experience versus being told? We haven't talked about W's.
1: Yeah. So I think I think W's are a big one, right? Because um I feel like you will learn that over time, but perhaps you could learn it faster um, if you're told because it's a a guaranteed piece of information that doesn't exist in the material, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it it gives you information, but very, very little. Um, And I think it's it's also just – it's pretty simple to try to train yourself to jump differently when you see a W shape, right? Even though that covers – words like one, O-N-E, right? It's kind of, that, that would be a false positive um, for jumping on a W. Um, you're willing to risk that to jump slower on the rest of the true Ws, right? Um, but I remember it, making a list of interrogatives and jumping on a TH or jumping on a J is pretty brutal, like very similar to Ws. And Ws are, are absolutely the worst if they're a who, but if they're a when or a what or a where, um, oftentimes if you get more than a syllable, you have kind of a lot of information, right? But obviously when you're choosing whether to jump or not, you can't choose between a who and a what. They just look too similar. Um, and similarly, it's I think THs can be kind of easy to watch for, but Js are hard. They're not super obvious visibly. Um, and I think so Ws are in this nice sweet spot of there's very few false positives um as far as that mouth shape. Um they're pretty bad to jump on um and they're pretty identifiable. And so that's that's a good one to to teach quizzers who are jumping at the, the faster speeds. So I think there's some of both, but probably more value in telling quizzers straight away. Yeah, indeed. So we hit like references, we hit lists, we hit um Um, is there anything to talk about as far as like jumping strategy, jumping on recognition versus jumping at a syllable speed?
0: There probably is. Um, but I mean, in terms of the lens of experience versus being told, it seems like a lot of that is thing are are things that if you're told that if your coach tells you that, or your captain tells you that, I think it would be something that you'd integrate probably faster than through experience. Probably. and context does matter
1: right you're not going to teach a rookie how to jump at two syllables versus three for their first meet there's not a lot of value there right 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 but i think i think it's really really helpful putting definition and structure around jumping speed um because i've been told a lot by quizzers i want to be able to jump faster um but that's not really what they mean they want to be able to win more jumps and get more right which is very different right yeah, um right. and so i think talking about jumping on recognition versus jumping at a syllable speed, jumping at one syllable versus nine, it it starts to give you verbiage to talk about jumping speed in a really, really structured way where you can identify like, oh, I just can't win jumps because I'm jumping on recognition versus at a certain speed or I'm targeting a speed that's too slow or I win plenty of jumps. I just get them all wrong. <laughs> um, and once you have that structured verbiage, you can attack, um, whatever is bringing you down.
0: Yep. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to the theoretical best way, best meaning to optimize to the mission, the best way to organize and lead an international quizzing program. So this is, I mean, we're probably going to just kind of dance around a lot of very fuzzy ideas here, but this is more just sort of like a brainstorming idea of, of how you would organize something. Um, and this can be valuable potentially to an existing program to say like, well, are there anything, is there anything that we're currently organized around that maybe we should consider changing or looking at potentially changing for optimization? And if you're starting a new program, what are some of the things that you want to consider in that sort of process? So... One of the things I'll just kind of throw out some ideas here and we'll just kind of explore together. But one idea is, um, preset geographic, uh, districts and I, and I should clarify districts, right? So let's say you've got this international quizzing program. Uh, well, if it's international, that means more than one country, right? So do you have, do you organize by country at the international level? Right? So like, if you're talking about the, uh, international Olympic committee, the IOC, competitors arrive at the Olympics organized by country, right? Um, so in terms of quizzing, does that mean we should have, you know, the Canadian, uh, international quizzing team and the USian uh, international quizzing team and those two teams compete and, you know, one team wins or something like that. Right. And well, that wouldn't make for a very fun meet, so we don't organize it, or, organize it that way. Um, but like, if you were to say, well, maybe there are 20 countries uh, across the world, let's say we're, we're organizing quizzing out of, um, let's say, Europe, right? And most of Europe participates in Bible quizzing, let's say, in this wonderful fictional world that I'm, in, I'm inventing in my head right now. Uh, does it make sense in that environment to organize teams around countries, right? So then, okay, if that's not going to work, let's say in the USian slash Canadian universe, do we want to organize around states and provinces? Uh, well, maybe, maybe not. You know, obviously in the CMA program, we have CMA districts uh, organized geographically there. Does that make the most sense? Uh, well, in some cases it does. Uh, But in other cases, it doesn't. Right. So, you know, let's say you've got somebody over in our neck of the woods, kind of near PNW. Let's say you've got somebody starting up some quiz teams in Vancouver, B.C. Well, they technically should be part of the uh, Canadian Pacific District but that district doesn't really have quizzing going on right now. It makes a whole lot more sense for them to join up with PNW until such time as there's growth amongst that, uh, you know, in that universe up there a little bit north of us where they can then create their own district. But even in that universe, is it necessarily true that generally defaulting back to CMA geographic districts make a lot of sense? I don't know that they do um and it may actually be an uh, a, a, a it may be something that actually prohibits growth uh to to some degree but if you don't organize around geographic districts what's the What's the flip side of that? Well, let's say you've got P and W as a fairly strong, robust district and somebody from say Clay Ellum decides, Hey, I want to quiz, but I don't want to quiz with P and W for whatever reason. And they create their own district, right? What would be the positives behind that? What would be the harms, uh, behind it? I'm sort of, I'm sort of, not sure that there would be any harm necessarily. I mean, if there's some sort of, you know, conflict between the districts or something like that, then sure, that that's harm. I don't want to see conflict there and we need to have some conflict resolution going on. But I mean, is it, is it particularly positive or negative beyond the concept of conflict resolution to have districts that are not geographically organized that way? Uh, So Scott, what do you, what do you think about that?
1: I mean, to answer a question like this, you kinda of have to decide like what's important and how do I define or determine success, right? Because there's probably many different ways to get at many different possible definitions of success. I think in general, it is easiest to to give people something clear to do. Um so if you say we will use the CMA districts or we will use states or we will use, you know, something that's very defined um, kind of reduces that decision, um, fatigue and just says, okay, well, we're going to do states. And so we'll do states, right? Um, that's not a decision that I have to make or convince anyone else of at a state level. Um, but there probably is a lot of value to not making it have to be that way necessarily. Right. Cause you may not foresee every possible geographic reality, right. Or, um, other sorts of reality that may make your initial loose mandate of states as not, not the best way to go in 100% of situations. Um, and so maybe picking something, anything off the bat, but allowing flexibility is a good way, right? Um, another reality of quiz programs or any sort of organized program is you often need a certain number of participants for it to be useful or viable. Um, and so you don't want to make it really, really easy to have lots of smaller organizations of non-viable size. Um, I don't know what that looks like, um, but that's probably also something in play.
0: Yeah. So, like, looking at a quiz meet, let's say you're going to run an international quizzing program. Maybe you have. I mean, as a result of running that program, you may want to have districts organized in whatever way seems to. Be maximize involvement of quizzers in whatever way it happens to be, right? So like, uh, if it seems to make the most sense to be geographically bound by some way, great. If, if if you say, well, they're geographically bound, but those boundaries are always in flux based on who wants to associate with what district for the value that they can get from each of those districts, by all means, maybe that works out uh, best. But ultimately, like you then come down to the okay well great i think that's our primary focus how do we maximize involvement at the district level but then you're also going to have say some sort of international quizzing event right the actual international quizzing championships let's say in this you know hypothetical program that you're you're putting together which means now you're running a meet you're you're putting on a meet and then you say well okay what are we trying to achieve by running this meet right do we Do we let any team attend, let's say, IBQ? What would be the harm in that? Well, right now, um, there's not a lot of harm in letting any team that wants to attend IBQ attend IBQ, right? So this year, we're going to have 10 teams. It's pretty small. Uh, If we had three more teams and they were just random teams from who knows where, and let's say at the same time that they weren't particularly good... Would we say no to them? Of course we wouldn't. We'd, we'd say sure if you if you guys can you know pay for it, if you guys can show up, um, if you guys can compete in even the most basic way, uh, sure we would encourage participation, right? Based on our current size. But let's take that that to the other end of the spectrum. Let's say we've got you know really robust quizzing going on. Let's say every Uh, Every province in Canada is well-represented with quizzing. Let's say every state in the U.S. is well-represented with quizzing. And now you're talking about like some fairly competitive teams showing up. And the total number of fairly competitive teams is like north of 35, right? Or 40. Well, that starts to get unwieldy. Uh, So do you then consider having... I mean, what do you do there? Do you invite everybody and just have a really massive internationals, which could be cool and fun, but also logistically uh, entertaining, uh, to say the least? Or do you say, well, we're going to actually have some sort of regional, large regional clustered prelim meets or qualifying meets to be able to then go to the final internationals quizzing meet to kind of cut down on the total size of the finals, right?
1: Yeah, and you would have to make those decisions based off of what is most important to you. Um, Is it identifying and rewarding the absolute most deserving team, right? In which case, you don't want a wide range of, or like long tails of participating teams where there are teams that are just really, really bad compared to the average team. Um, Because unless everyone is facing every other opponent the exact same number of times, you have kind of, undermine that sort of side of the competition if that is like of paramount importance to you right um do you really want 12 prelims right or would you be fine with six would you be fine with four um it, it just it matters what you care to to label as not label you're not labeling it you get to choose what's most important right and it could be right. you, you'd rather have a larger number of people all together for a certain amount of time and the specifics of the competition. And did we crown the actual best team as the winner are relatively less important, right?
0: Right. Would you agree that, and I kind of threw it out there, but, but maybe we should actually uh, verify this first. Would you agree that it is that in terms of program, overall program health, and I mean that like like internationally, and I don't mean at the international meet, but internationally across the entire program, it is better to focus on the health of districts than to focus on the health of the international competition itself. I would agree with that. I also agree. Why do you agree? Because I think
1: that, hmm, I mean, frankly, I think that internationals has value as an incentive for because it's difficult to do well at. And if you don't have a large number of participating districts, it's way less of incentive. Like it's it's less fun to place in the top three when it's not as hard, you know?
0: Yeah, true. I, I For me, I would bring it back to mission, right? Uh, if obviously I want to promote district level quizzing and I want to promote international level quizzing, but if I have to choose between the two of them, district level quizzing is more, uh, not just more likely, it tremendously more advances the mission than internationals quizzing does. I mean, you, 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 with district level quizzing, you are reaching literally every quizzing participant uh, with internationals quizzing. You're not, I mean, definitionally.
1: Sure. And I think that's, it's always been interesting to try to tease out what is the value of a tiered competition system, right? Because my belief was the competition is the only thing getting anyone to memorize more than five verses a person. So the more competition in a tiered format, the more you're going to get memorization. Um, absolutely. But I don't know if there's kind of a limit to that, right? Like if there's a, a logical maximum where the effort expended is no longer worth it.
0: Well, so like, let's take it to, you know, an, another step, right? So what is more important to maximize, to optimize now at a district level, do you want to optimize for top nine or do you want to optimize for constellations? And when I say optimize, let me be really clear about that. Obviously we want a district level meet to be rewarding and valuable to as li- literally everybody. Ideally, we want everyone to feel like it was good for them to you know, participate at the district level. So we want to optimize both top nine and consolation uh, brackets and to encourage every quizzer to do as, as best they can in, in, at whatever level that they happen to be. But if you, you know, the trolley problem here, let's say you could only choose to optimize one versus the other which one do you optimize?
1: And I have no idea
0: because it's
1: really weird because quizzing and the scoring is all relative, right? So if you took a, a district of 200 people and just removed their best 25 quizzers, well, all of the current competitive structure would still exist, right? You would still have a top five or a top 10 and a top, Twenty and twenty-five that go to internationals or winter internationals or whatever, right? You would have a top nine bracket, top eighteen. You could still have all of that, but I don't know how removing that sort of participant changes the longevity, velocity, viability of a quiz program. I really, I have no idea.
0: Right. I will throw out an idea. I think it's best to optimize for the center of the bell curve, wherever that center happens to be. Right. So, and, and for some districts, I mean, maybe you have a normally distributed curve in some districts, you may have a curve that, that is leans more to the left, maybe leans more to the right. And when I say leans left and leans right, I mean, left tends to be a little bit on the, you know, the lower end of the numbers, right, tends to be on the higher end of the numbers. So I guess leans more towards lower, leans a little bit towards what towards higher is probably a better way of saying it. Um, Every shape of the bell curve is going to be just a little bit different or maybe wildly different from district to district. And so like, to me, it seems like what you want to do is optimize for the best possible middle curve that you can get from the wider group of people that might join quizzing so uh, let me <laughs> let me describe that so imagine like concentric circles right and at the core you have the current group of people who are involved in quizzing and at the farthest extent uh bubble you have the people who at least theoretically could get involved in quizzing And I think then there's this middle bubble between these two, which is the the people that you could realistically try to get involved in quizzing, right? And so targeting that middle bubble, if those people were involved in quizzing, what would the distribution uh, curve look like for your district? plot the center point, the the sort of one standard deviation from the mean of that point, and say that's the cluster that you need to optimize for. And depending upon all these factors, you know, maybe that's in the, maybe that's the top nine, maybe that's consolation. Who knows? It's somewhere in there. I can tell you it's very likely not going to be your championship uh, top three teams in your district, right? It's probably going to be, I mean, if you've got a large district, it's probably your second uh, 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 nine, uh, top nine bracket. What do you call it? It's almost top nine bracket. Second bracket of nine, basically ten through eighteen. Um, in a smaller district, maybe it is your your the bottom half of your top nine bracket. Who knows, right? But you want to kind of optimize for those things. And so, interestingly enough, if you have a district where the bottom half of your top nine is that is the the one standard distribution of the mean for your particular district, the way we run our brackets and consolations right now is actually de-optimized for that group. Say more about that. Well, so for example, the way that we run cons and top nine, if you, if you don't get into top nine, you run cons until uh finals which are which are structured like uh prelims. And I'm I'm speaking purely with from P and W's perspective here. Other districts, you know, can can and do things very, very differently, right? Uh, but generally speaking, if you're not in top nine, you go into cons and cons run prelims that are usually pretty fun and pretty casual. And you run those right up until uh, the championship quiz. And then everybody goes and watches the championship quizzes and then has a lot of fun. And then we do awards and we're done. Right. So The quizzers that are involved in cons generally have something to do. It's fun. It's an activity. They're fellowshipping a lot. They're quizzing with each other. There's good promotion stuff there. If you're in top nine, and let's say you're in the top half of the top nine, you're quizzing in an ever competitive uh, environment, and it's fun, it's exhausting, and you're working your way towards championship. And even if you don't make it, you know, if you've got, you know, say fourth or fifth place like you've had several quizzes to get there and you've had a good time now let's say you're in eighth place right eight or ninth place generally speaking and you have a couple of top nine uh, quizzes and then you're out right uh that's see i mean it's not the end of the world but it's if that's the 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 center point of the bell curve it's suboptimal relative to the other ends of the spectrum.
1: Um, yes. I mean, it's hard because everything's so interrelated,
0: right? It is. It is. And if you pull on any one thread anywhere, it like ripples across the entire fabric of all that is quizzing, right? So like, like, and I'm not even sure there's a way that you could change what I'm talking about. And I'm, And even if there was, I'm not even sure it would be a good idea to pull on that thread because you can't just pull one little thing somewhere and expect it to only have single order effects and nothing else. It's it's just going to ripple across everything.
1: Right. Because one meets team in seventh, eighth, ninth is next meets team in 10th, 11th and 12th, you know?
0: Yeah. Or next exactly. meets team. And vice versa. In...
1: Right. But yeah. it is an interesting thing to ponder and you probably can do a lot worse than, targeting the bulk of the bell curve wherever that bulk falls
0: yeah yeah theoretically
1: it seems like a more reasonable thing to use as your base assumption than anything else
0: (laughs) yeah theoretically well i mean then there's the other side of the coin uh organize you know taking a step back and going back to the like organizing an international quizzing program slash organizing a district one of the problems that you have to solve is how do you get volunteers who are willing to do the job, the work, be responsible, be responsive, uh, actually take the duty of care that they're signing up for seriously, and actually do the work that they're volunteering for. I mean, we don't pay our volunteers. Uh, we're you know the nature of volunteering is you get what you get. Uh, so, are there ways to organize an international program and or a district program to I wouldn't say maximize or optimize the number of volunteers you get, because that's not the point, but to ensure that you have enough volunteers so that you can be successful. Right. And actually, let me rephrase that enough good volunteers so that you can be successful.
1: Yeah. I think that's an ever present struggle.
0: How would you do it?
1: I would try to make the volunteer roles as defined and finite as possible.
0: Yeah. 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 You could do that. Um, there are some people who want leadership roles because they want the role of leadership, not because they want to do the job. And I, I don't, I don't mean that disparagingly, but there are people who want to sign up to be a leader because they like the idea of saying I'm a leader, uh, the prestige that comes with the title rather than saying I actually want to accomplish something like I, I, and, and not even I, it's more like I will be an instrument so that something can be accomplished for the good of the program kind of thing. Right. So I've been flirting with this idea and it's probably a totally unwieldy idea and it probably wouldn't work at all, but it's just a theoretical idea. What if you had volunteers be anonymous? I mean obviously that doesn't work out in all contexts. You need a meet director who is actually known. You need quiz masters who are actually known because they're going to, you know, you you can't have an anonymous quiz master, right? Um, what is it? What does that show? Um, the singer in the mask or something where you have to guess the, the, the person.
1: Yeah. The mask that singer, it?
0: the mask singer. Okay. Obviously I'm a big fan, right? Um, So, I mean, maybe you develop the masked QM or something and nobody knows who it is until the very end of the meet. Um, I know. I mean, obviously this is super, you know, ridiculous, but I mean, I've been not brainstorming because that's too strong of a word flirting with the idea of what would it be like if you could remove the prestige of the office so that people will want to volunteer purely for the sake of actually accomplishing something.
1: Very interesting. Like, would you get more or fewer?
0: I think you would get fewer, but maybe better quality. I don't know. Right? Yeah. Well, do we want to? We want to call it. Uh, we we'll want to call it here.
1: I think so. Even though this was a uh, two-topic episode, it feel it felt like more of a mixed bag.
0: Yeah, it definitely was a very mixed bag. Well, and on that mixed bag bombshell, I want to remind everybody that uh, we would very much like to hear from you for a variety of reasons. If you agreed with anything that we were talking about on the podcast today we would love to hear from you but we especially want to hear from you if you disagreed with anything or if you have additional ideas that uh, we didn't bring up and you'd like to share we really would love to hear from you so please email us at iq at cbqz.org that email goes to both scott and uh, myself and usually one of us uh, will reply pretty quickly. Uh, and then, you know, next episode or two, we'll usually try to get your comments, uh, into, uh, the podcast. And then you can also follow us on Twitter. Our account is at inside quizzing, and you can also chat with us in kind of almost near real time on the Bible quizzing Slack channel inside quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thanks to all of our listeners. And thank you, Griffin.